Thank you, Pastor Mike. Hi, everybody. It is um, an absolute privilege to get a chance to open the Bible tonight and gather around who God is and what He's done. Uh, tonight, I want to um, thank you for the opportunity to do that. It is a humbling thing to preach the Bible, and um, I would not do it if I didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was at work doing what he wanted to do through his own word despite what the preacher says. By the way, if you hear something you don't like tonight, don't blame Renovation Church. I'm a guest speaker, okay? <laughs> just want just to let you guys off the hook to begin with. I'm also um, uh, so honored to partner with you guys as we uh, work together to try to play our part in reaching the town of Clay and the town of Salina that make up 64, about 64,000 people in the greater Syracuse area who deserve and who I believe God desires uh, to have an opportunity to hear a clear and repeated presentation of the gospel for every man, woman, and child. And it's our joy to know that there are people like you living on mission who have elevated God's fame above the fame of their own church and their own leaders and their own people. And uh, it's a privilege to partner with you guys while God uses you to make himself known among our communities. And uh, we're pretty pumped that you guys are down the street. I'm sure you're disappointed you don't get to live out of a closet anymore. It's a big disappointment. In fact, I was thinking while I was watching the slideshow that we're so impressed with your new space, I'd like to make a formal request that we get to use your space on Sunday mornings for about two hours, if you don't mind. Just two hours. We'll be in and out. We'll hardly leave the place uh, like anyone was there. But uh, so fun, so exciting. And there's a part of me that wonders, and I hope there's nobody here from that church uh, that uh, moved out of there. Uh, a part of me wonders if any of their church members kind of bounce in there and say, oh man, look at this place now. What were we thinking? How do we let this, get, this little space get out of our, uh, uh, slip through our fingers? I hope that's not true. But um, uh, tonight we're going to talk specifically about... Um, the way God has revealed himself in terms of shining brightly for God's kingdom, no matter where he sent you. And Paul the Apostle is addressing the church at Philippi who are, um, who are wrestling through a new faith and Paul is helping them to affect and to uh, um, uh, um, really reflect God well in their community and he provides for them an exhortation. So tonight, give me, if you, if you wouldn't mind, allow me the opportunity to point out what Paul teaches the church at Philippi uh, and allow uh, yourself, if you would, to receive an exhortation about how to live in a way that helps make Jesus famous in your circles, in your life, with the people that you love and live with, okay? Uh, look at uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2 with me, if you, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Christians, you specifically who are Christians, don't let your life distract the people that you're trying to attract. Be careful that your specific life as a believer doesn't provide a distraction instead of an attraction to the God that you serve. And um, 
Paul here is addressing the very specific uh, um, cause of living a certain way among the culture. I know that you hear uh, um, a steady, uh, I'm sure, a steady and a stable and a deep and meaningful call to mission from Pastor Mike. I'm sure of it. Uh, This is what Paul basically helps us understand better how to be people of impact. Now, I'm going to um, admit to you, as I'm, as I'm going to ask a question here on a topic that I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I wanted to give you a heads up that I'm going to venture into uh, um, a topic that uh, I have no experience with. I have only seen it on television and have uh, clearly no idea what I'm talking about, and here's what I mean. I've wondered why young men and young women desire ever to be a gangster or a drug dealer. I don't know why. I don't know why. Off the top of my head, I don't have no idea why they would want to accept, and this is completely speculation because, as I said, I don't have any real experience with this, um, except that they see certain level of cash, cars, rims, notoriety, and otherwise local fame that is attractive to them, and despite spending time in funeral homes with dead siblings, friends, and family, and well-known people within their own community, despite seeing that, they're willing to trade the risk in to partake or to participate in a level of notoriety and a level of a, a, a lifestyle that's attractive to them. That's the only thing I could think. Does that sound reasonable to you? That's, a, that's the only possible way I could think, and that is that there's a lifestyle that's attractive to the kids that the gangsters and the drug dealers don't have to have special days where they're trying to recruit young people into the gangbanger world or into the drug dealing world because the lifestyle sells itself. It's attractional. There is no program. They don't have to set up a, 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 um, a um, any kind of uh, routine or organization to help spread the attraction of that particular lifestyle. It's simply by attraction. It reminds me, my daughter heard some uh, um, from one of her friends who she attends school with, who is unchurched, non-believing friend who we love and have loved on. And uh, her friend said uh, to her, she, my daughter's 17, and her friend said to her, I think I've decided I want to come and be a part of your church. And she said, really? That's, I'm, I didn't expect you to say that. And she said, um, it, it has occurred to me that whatever it is that you're believing and however it is that you're, whatever it is that you're doing at your church seems like the real thing. So my daughter at West Tennessee High School doesn't have to uh, um, evangelize, doesn't have to coerce, doesn't have to sell. And I'm thrilled to tell you that there's a level of attraction in her natural life of faith that someone finds it attractive and it's not a distraction to her, instead it's an attraction to her. And that's a credit, I think, to the way um, God really desires for us to work. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I desire more than anything is to be regularly introducing my church family to the people whom God has given an opportunity for me to love and lead to Jesus. And in a water baptismal tank, I'm getting the chance to water baptize them while I'm introducing them to my church family. Because I think it only makes sense that if I'm going to ask and preach and urge and inspire our church family to be leading and loving people towards Jesus, that I myself am modeling that and helping to baptize people who have just recently come to faith in Jesus. When I picture what that takes, it's a life of attraction rather than distraction. And Paul is going to sort through this because I'm sure there's a lot of us in this room that envision ourselves sharing our faith with the people that we love and live with and doing it effectively. 
I'm sure most of you, when you think of sharing your own faith, what you're imagining is that you don't come off forceful. You don't come off in a way that violates uh, uh, um, somebody's sensitivities in a way that um, doesn't uh, allow you or that you, or you resist playing into the stereotypes that we also despise about what it looks like and how it makes someone feel. And yet at the same time, I know that we can get frustrated when we're sharing our faith on a regular basis in a genuine way, and we can't figure out why it seems like a one-way conversation, lecture style, and they're checking their watch to say, when, this, when is this going to be over so I can get out of here? Because this person won't leave me alone. So somewhere in between has got to be the way that God has planned for us to naturally live a life of attraction. And he's teaching, and Paul is teaching the Philippian church here, and he's exhorting them, and he's saying, there are ways to be attractive so you don't distract people from the God who we're trying to uh, um, elevate and who we're trying to make famous. Christians, um, I don't know if you know this, this might be an absolute news blast for you. Did you know that Christians, uh, by many accounts, according to outsiders, Christians are irrelevant? I know this is going to knock you off your chairs irrelevant, hypocritical, judgmental, and harsh. Did you know that that's how many people view Christians? I hope that's true. If you don't know that, you need to get with someone and catch up, okay? It'll help you to be a little more self-aware. But that, it, 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 it's easy to make light of that, but it, but it grieves me and it pains me that that's the way that we, have been per, that we are perceived by outsiders. Now, I think some of that is a bed that we're laying in that we've made for ourselves. And at the same time, uh, when you ask what people think of, when they think of the Christian church, I think a lot of people think that the church is just simply a group of people who are devoted to restrictive moral rules. They are a group of people who, who when they sense that a whole bunch of people are having fun, they've got to withdraw because there's no fun allowed. I think that there are some who, and, and maybe some of you have grown up this same way, uh, um, who have experienced and been around people who have strong feelings about Christians being uh, hypocritical, judgmental, harsh. And for some, I think it's boiled down to this. I think that they believe that Christians are people devoted to potluck dinners, bingo, and the Pope. And actually, in comparison to being considered hypocritical, harsh, uh, um, judgmental people, I'll take that, right? As a starting point, I would take that. As a solution to our perception or the way that, the, the, that our, our culture has perceived Christians, I think that at some point or other we decided the best way to advertise our own faith is to set up something called spotlight advertising. You may have come across this kind of advertising, uh, a, a car dealership or a retail space that's got a grand opening. And you, you, Can you picture those spotlights that shoot up into the air and they kind of spin like this? And the idea is something special is going on there and if you have time or you're nearby or they're selling something you want, come on over and check it out. And we have to be careful that we don't respond to our culture by setting up spotlight advertising for our faith and the church becomes a place primarily known for what's happening on the property at the building and you have to come and visit it if you have time in your schedule, if you haven't had a bad experience, or if you're driving by and you're attracted to it, that through the offices, the programs, the organizations of the church, the church becomes a place where you come and you check out what's going on because the spotlights have made it appealing. One big spotlight cannot be as effective as what God had in mind, which is a million sources of light more like a flashlight, with every Christian providing some light in the dark in the form of a flashlight, and therefore uh, um, 
with this particular kind of approach, we have to we allow ourselves to tune into the way that God wants to expand his church, and he expands his church not through one simple attractive location, but instead a million attractive people living their life in an attractive way. And that's what requires time, energy, sacrifice, love, and really tuning into who God is and the mission that he has called us to, the one that he has lived himself. And scheduled ministry through the local church in the form of organization and programs, as beautiful and as effective as it may be, it cannot make up our entire definition of what God is going to be doing through his church. It cannot happen. It cannot happen. We can't go back to building something that everybody wants to be at and then realizing the year after we have to build something more to bring more people. I embrace that we as the local church in the modern culture that we live in are, are attractional. I completely embrace that. That's the kind of culture we live in. But here's what I'm asking you to consider. Would you consider again that that cannot be our primary means of reaching lost people in the town of Clay and the town of Salina? who are desperate for some kind of light to be attracted to, it cannot simply come through the planning and the programming of the local church office. It cannot. And so therein lies uh, um, the solution, which I would like to appeal to anyone who is a, a serious Christian here tonight who is willing to consider the special effort that's going to be required to avoid distracting people from the real Jesus in order to better attract people to the real Jesus. Gospel Christians are careful. They are careful people, very careful people, to live a life of attraction, not distraction. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we see uh, really what, what we need to start with is what Paul says about God. And he points this out to us very specifically, very vividly in verse 15. And here's what he says. He basically says this. The attractive brightness of the father shines through his children. Where, does the ch where do the children get the brightness? For the same, the, the same way the moon gets the light, the, the, the uh, reflective light of the sun, the children of God are the, ones who, uh, 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 are, are the ones who transmitting the attractive brightness of the Father. He says in verse 15, as children of God who are doing what? Shining like bright lights. So there's a bright light who is God who provides for us as his children the brightness required to attract people. Listen to this. Paul later in Timothy or, or, or is explaining... Uh, who God is in some of the most vivid language describing who God is. He says he alone can never die and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. What, what Paul is teaching is that God is a God of unapproachable light. That his character and his nature is so heavy and weighty and bright and glorious that the humans that he has created, even his own children, cannot possibly approach him in the form that he has created them. No human eye has ever seen God, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever, amen. Those are the words of Paul the Apostle in Timothy chapter 6. The psalmist puts it this way, you are dressed in a robe of light. You are the one who stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. And what we see here is what Paul is doing is he's revealing, quite possibly he's referring to the way that God revealed himself as Yahweh in the book of Deuteronomy. And he is uh, describing here um, in the book of Exodus, he's describing where God makes himself known and he reveals himself that God himself is a God of radiant glory and when his glory appears, human know instinctively to keep their distance from him. Normally speaking, God is inaccessible to humans, 
However, through Christ, God has given us the ability to approach him now. And if you were to ask a kid, what is God? Who is God? What does he look like? Here's what the kids would say. God is love. He's forgiveness. He's grace. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. If you have a theologically sound kid, you'll, they may say something like this. God is a God of wrath against all unrighteousness. That would make me so proud if my kid said that. <laughs> he is all of those things. But God himself primarily is a God who dwells in unapproachable light. That's the character and nature of God. And, and, and no man has seen God at any time. And when they have come close to doing that, there's a dramatic response. Moses, uh, some of you may know who are familiar with the Old Testament, saw uh, more of God than any man has seen. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John also had visions of divine glory of God himself uh, and had similar responses of amazement. Moses, it was said of him that he laid haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He fell forward. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am ruined. He gets a little glimpse of God, the God who wraps himself in light, the God who is light, and he says, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, am, and, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Ezekiel, in his encounter with God, falls flat on his face. John, we know twice, attempted to worship an angel because of what he had seen. All of these men were overwhelmed at a God who was a God of light. So here's the question. The question is, how do we attract a crooked and perverse and twisted generation of, of, of humans around the world, not just here in America, but around the world, how do we, as devoted believers who trust Jesus, how do we attract this crooked and perverse culture to a God of glorious light? Well, first of all, the light has to be held up, not covered up. We don't withdraw out of the darkness. You remember that Jesus, of course, came and the Word was made flesh and the Word did something very unique and shocking. The Word dwelt with us where? In the dark. And so we have to first start with this idea that the light has to be shining in the darkness and like anything, when they are lost in the dark, they are attracted to any source of light. So imagine, if you would, that we are uh, um, invited into a culture that is full of twisted and perverse darkness, crooked as one could measure. And what God is simply saying is this, every Christian who wants to shine brighter should turn up the contrast in their life. Turn up the contrast. To live attractively, you turn up your character contrast. There's a contrast in the character of Christians, and it's not a self-righteous contrast, but there's a character in a believer that stands apart from, that shines brightly, and that is in full contrast to the darkness of the character of the people in the culture. So there's a think in terms of contrast when you think of how do I live attractively in the culture? Here's what the answer is. You live in contrast to the culture. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. Where do you start? Here's what he says. And it's an exhortation. It's an inspiration. It's a directive. It's, a, it's, it's something that is directive in nature. And here's what he says. Do everything without complaining and arguing. So here's what he says. If you're a believer and you want to live attractionally and you want to uh, um, demonstrate some contrast to the world, knock off the complaining. Now, if, if, if you're me, you're looking for the theological implications and how Paul is going to take us into a particular level of sound doctrine and depth where our roots are being kind of challenged. But he simply says, knock off the complaining. Don't be contentious complainers if you want to reach lost people in a twisted and perverse world. I'm kind of going, man, it seems a little simplistic. What are we in pre-K uh, children's church here? I mean, 
Can we do some group therapy? I wonder how many of us would be willing to admit that we have a knee-jerk, natural, unspiritual proneness to complain about the lamest, weakest, shallowest, most insignificant, selfish areas of our lives, don't we? And so imagine us getting all hyped up because we're going to live on mission and we're going to reach lost people. They're going to be our, our lost neighbors, our lost coworkers, our friends and family. We're going to help lead them to Jesus. And where do we start? Live in contrast. How do we do that? Knock off the complaining. Re Here's what happens, and I think this is what Paul is trying to say. Paul is trying to say, for those of us who trust a sovereign God who is in charge of all things, every time we complain, here's what we're saying. God has been entrusted with the oversight of all of these affairs and he's not doing a very good job. See, what happens is in our complaining, we express a level of doubt. And we're also saying if we were in charge, we'd be doing it a whole lot different than the way God's doing it. And I think what that says to people who are uh, um, outside of the Christian faith is that we're not even sure our own God is in control of our own circumstances. And I don't know about you, but I, find that, uh, um, I don't find that very attractive about a God who has created the universe to not, uh, um, certainly not be able to be trusted with the universe. Does that make sense? So Paul here is addressing our behavior, and he's addressing it specifically, and he's hitting us head on here. And what he's saying is attractive Christians who have a contrasting character are not complainers. They're not dragging their disputes and their complaints and their selfishness into the public for the public to hear them complaining about each other, complaining about other people, and, and, and certainly not complaining about other Christians and other uh, pieces and parts of God's church family. All of this stuff, um, he is asking us to consider that if we're a Christian who openly complains and gripes and participates in public conflict and disagreements with, it's just, it's just uh, somehow, uh, and again, if this is you, forgive me for stepping on your toes, but social media has given us an opportunity to be the loudest complainers on the planet. And when Christians are complainers, there's just a part of my heart that just, it just gets it's so heavy. We trust a God who is sovereignly and providentially overseeing all things, including our politics. Do we know this? He is overseeing our politics. What is, what is the challenge for the New Testament believer regarding politics? Pray for your leaders. God raises them up and he brings them down. Go to the polls and be devoted and pay your taxes. If it belongs to Caesar, pay him the coin. If it, whatever belongs to God, pay it to God. But don't for a second let yourself be such a complainer publicly that we become a distraction to the king and the sovereign one who rules over the universe because we're all nervous and full of complaint about what's happening around us. Does that make sense? I think we become so much more winsome. We become so much more attractive. And our lives become an attraction rather than a distraction as we turn up the contrast. So when we're sitting around with people full of complaint, God help us to be those people who are committed to trusting God to be in charge of all things that we don't need to complain about it. And most of the time, all it takes is a little elementary size pre-K three count anyways. Three, two, one, don't say it. Don't, whatever was just gonna come out, just don't say it. Don't say it, so simple. And here's what I wonder too. I wonder if our hearts were full and our eyes were focused and we were overflowing with a simple awareness of the glory of God and the brightness that is God. We wouldn't, it, 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 those things of earth wouldn't even hold our attention long enough for us to say something about them. Make sense? There are, um, that is one way, that's one way that Christians are challenged to stand out, 
to make themselves a people of contrast in a selfish and whining, self-pity world. And a life full of contentment and gratitude and godly praise would certainly help us um, to be more attractive. Now, I do think that there's one way that we unknowingly distract instead of attract, and that is related to this. When we find ourselves kind of restless with things that are happening in our culture, and instead of turning up the contrast, we turn up the volume. And we um, put ourselves in a position to get louder rather than get brighter. And what Paul is saying is here, Paul is teaching us here, is he's teaching the church that the church's responsibility is to be brighter, not louder. And again, we go back to some of the ways in which we can find ourselves uh, uh, with an audience now to get louder and louder, but I'm certain that many of us as Christians uh, want to see moral change in our culture, don't we? And even for God's sake, we want that moral change to happen. And we've determined to bring change. And the way that we've decided to do it is to turn up the volume on our condemnation rather than turning up the contrast on our compassion. And we find ourselves in a position where we are now, because we want to see moral change, we've turned up the volume to protest politics and policies and the president, to turn up the volume to protest immoral legislation and to protest abortion and protest uh, uh, gay marriage and whatever the topic is in our culture. But do you see what I'm saying? The solution is not necessarily turning up the volume, but turning up the contrast in the way that we live our lives. It's a huge difference. So if you want people to see Jesus when they're watching your life, turn up your contrast, not your volume. Let me give you some specifics before we get to this uh, um, second part of this text here. So, so let me challenge you. Let me, let me invite you to consider something. Would you consider, um, instead of just turning up the volume over your criticisms uh, of, of public politics, what if instead you turned up your contrast with real compassionate policies that really do help meet the needs of people rather than uh, um, turning up your protest and condemning politics. But what if there were compassionate policies that we could get behind support and pray through? If you're a politician, that means something to you. If not, it probably doesn't. Let me, say, let me give you another one. What if we don't just allow ourselves to turn up the volume on our open condemnation of abortion, but instead we turn up the contrast by opening our hearts to the possibility that God wants to use the church to be an adoptive place where people who, through no merit of their own, are brought in and loved? And so we spend less time condemning abortion, which, by the way, I can't possibly think of strong enough words to condemn abortion. I can't possibly think of strong enough words. And if you have had an abortion, know somebody who's had an abortion, you've considered it, or otherwise are associated with that topic, my heart goes out to you as a, as a victim. My heart goes out to you. The damage and devastation. But I do believe that we as the church would be wise to consider, rather than turning, turning up the volume of our condemnation, to turn up the contrast in what we provide in terms of being adoptive people and allowing ourselves to stand in contrast. And the same is true when you think about uh, um, turning up our volume by openly condemning and protesting gay marriage. How about this? We, instead, we turn up the contrast with our own self-sacrificing, loving, beautiful, heterosexual ma marriage, which stands as a contrast in our culture rather than condemning uh, um, the, the, the way in which our culture is conducting their own relationships now. Whether or not you're for something like gay marriage is, is not the topic. I'm simply saying, imagine if we provide a beautiful alternative and it comes as a contrast in our culture. 
You'll shine brighter. You'll shine brighter when the people around us recognize us based on what we're for rather than what we're against and are attracted to what we're uh, for. And we are, because we're living in, as a contrast in the darkness, not just a critic of the darkness. So for some of you, um, you might say, well, I find myself trying to be that way, Pastor, but that's just the way I am. That's the way I am. I tend to be kind of involved in things, and I've got really uh, strong opinions, and I say, that's terrific, but I want to I ask you to consider what Paul says. He says there's a lot on the line for getting this right. If you can't get control of your contentious complainer conduct, conduct what's at risk is the repu- your reputation, which also, by association, is the reputation of God. And here's what Paul says. He says, don't be a chronic complainer who's argumentative, who's contentious. Why? Because the outsiders will criticize you. You will damage your reputation from those who don't belong to God's church. And so Paul, even Paul is saying, you should care what outsiders think about you. Now, by that we don't mean what they think of the gospel, but the way that we conduct our lives, Paul says, is an issue, and we don't want them to have grounds for criticizing us, and in so doing, being able to have uh, um, uh, credible grounds to criticize God. And we represent Him well. And it's our responsibility to help fortify the credibility of the gospel, right? It's our responsibility to help raise the attractiveness of the gospel. We have had the uh, privilege of being able to work out an adoptive relationship with a local school um, named Downland Drive Elementary, and we thank God for the opportunity, and we're prayerful as to how and, uh, uh, um, and where that particular relationship leads. And I can imagine the impact of something like this if our church family is engaged in real relationship with the Downland Drive Elementary faculty, staff, and administration in the Liverpool Central Schools, and they come to know us as complainers, protesters who are condemning the teachers' union, Common Core, and every other policy and every other uh, um, social issue while we're interfacing with those, those people, and they come to realize, oh, these people are no different. They just attend church on Sunday. What's at stake? North Central Church? Renovation Church? Is that what's at stake? Of course not. What's at stake is the reputation of the Creator. What's at stake is the reputation of God, which is our joy to be a part of protecting and living as people who are living in contrast. And we have to get this straight. If you don't actually live what you say, you'll, you'll find out that no one cares what you say. So that, that, that we could live this out and, and better protect God's reputation. And to live more attractively, we have to also, this is the second part of the text, turn up our conscience contrast. Now, that's a, that's a, I think that's a hard one to put together. But what, listen to what Paul says here. Uh, he says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God. So another way to live attractively is to live clean and innocent lives as children of God. And what he's talking about here is some moral consistency that allows you to go to sleep at night and rest with a clear conscience. And here's why. Because if we're trying to lead people to Jesus and we're trying to live brightly and attractively to people, not be a distraction, we can't be bold when our conscience is saying, stop talking, don't say any more about Jesus, you're a hypocrite. Paul is recognizing here that blamelessness helps our own conscience and our own innocence before God comes through Christ. But when we are sinful, not sinners, but we are sinful, full of sin, and there's inconsistency in our own convictions that in the back of our mind is this accuser, in the back of our mind is this, uh, um, this, the, these, these voices that say, you are being 
hypocritical. You are guilty, and here's what happens. When we have a guilty conscience, our boldness, in, there's no doubt in my mind, our boldness begins to deflate. So in large part, what Paul is challenging us, he's challenging his church to express our faith with a conscience that's clear where we are blameless before God, not by all the righteous things that we have done, but by our faith and by the way in which we're willing to remove ourselves from sin and immorality. And there's a consistency in our life that goes along with building up a personal boldness and not sabotaging our own boldness to share our faith. So how do we act around crookedness and perversity? This, the, the text here in the ESV uh, uh, says a twisted generation. How do we act around crookedness, a twisted generation? I know that for most of us, because I follow uh, along on Facebook as much as probably the rest of you, I know that the knee-jerk reaction is to condemn the culture. The knee-jerk reaction is to criticize the culture. The knee-jerk reaction in a coffee club where we're hanging out drinking coffee is to raise our complaints and, and vent uh, as to what's happening around us. But check this out. Paul says, in a world full of crooked and perverse people, our mission is to shine like bright lights, to do the shining, to be the ones who are the brightest, to be the ones who are living in contrast. And by a crooked and perverse generation, he doesn't mean those who are sinning. Instead, he, he means those who are idolaters. We all miss the mark, but he's specifically speaking of people who have found their gratification and satisfaction outside of God in the things he has created, not the creator himself. Functional saviors. And so what do we do with a movie that's sweeping our culture like 50 shades of gray? What do we do with a movie like that? I'm not one to stand up on the platform and protest our culture and protest the things that are happening in our culture. By the way, within weeks, most things that we get all riled up to protest, they're already come and gone. And we're on to the next thing. But when we have $100 million worth of ticket sales already at a movie like this, where 68% of the moviegoers are women, I can't stop thinking about my own daughters and what this means for them. I can't stop thinking about it, what it means for them if it's normal and natural in our culture for sexual and emotional abuse to be romantic. I can't stop thinking about what that means for my boys who grow up in a culture realizing that there's some level of bravado and, 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 and macho and, and some level of masculinity in being able to properly seduce, manipulate, emotionally and sexually abuse a woman just because. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that type of culture? And of course I think that we as believers have all the right in the world to stand up and say that kind of abuse is wrong, it's sinful, it does damage, it hurts hearts, it breaks our culture, it breaks our kids, it breaks our relationships, it breaks our marriage. But rather than protesting a movie in our culture, what if we decided that this is an opportunity to live in contrast to that and I love the idea that my children grow up in a home where mom and dad are so in love with each other that they are so selfless with their love they are so romantic and beautiful and intimate in a way that is appropriately healthy with them. When they see films like this, they say, that's really not love. I know what love is. I've experienced it in my home because my parents have shined brightly and they've lived in contrast, not condemnation of the culture. So then they, are, they find themselves attracted to the things of God because of the people of God and the way they're living rather than finding themselves in a picket line at the mall telling people, don't go see a film. 
I love the idea that God has invited us in to live brightly, live in contrast, live in a way that is attractive and winsome. Why? So that we shine like bright stars in a dark, in a dark twisted, perverse generation, and stars reflect the light of the sun. The brightness and the glory of God as it relates to, uh, uh, as it comes from the Father. And let us never forget that Jesus, even Jesus in his own world said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn art and film and music. I didn't come to condemn uh, even people. I came to save them. I, I came to invite them to find life and find it more abundantly when the thief is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm inviting them to life. That we, God's church, would live a life full of abundance and joy and brightness and be attractive people. I love the idea that Renovation Church is down the road with a desire flickering in their hearts to live as attractive people to invite people to their dinner tables, invite people to the coffee shop, uh, to the coffee shop invite people uh, out to eat and be a part of their life as they, as they literally put their life in all of its brightness and all of its contrast on display to say we're winsome people and we believe in a God who is beautiful, full of light, and we're just one of the stars that's reflecting who he is. Now, don't use those words because that's totally weird. I mean, people be out the door. But you see what I'm saying? I wonder if you'd pray with me. I'd love to pray for you guys this, uh, this evening. Father, I pray that you'd um, energize our hearts. It's, it's, um, I'm just cautioned in my spirit, Father, as someone who is delicately trying to avoid um, putting our church, your church, in a position to just live better and do better and... Um, so I'm just trusting that your Holy Spirit would reach into the souls and the inner life of your people and would provide gospel motivation, gospel power to be people of joy and peace, really just a people of contrast. May our marriages be marriages of love and sacrifice and beauty. May our relationships with our family and our friends, the people we live with and love, may they be so winsome that it pleases you. And I know that because your reputation is on the line, you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, deepen us with the truth of your word, will guide us, will empower us, and will direct us because your reputation is on the line. What a joy it is to participate in what you're doing to reach the town of Clay and the town of Salina. And God, I pray that um, you would do a special work in Pastor Mike as he leads, do a special work in Renovation Church as they launch into a new phase of life and ministry. And uh, would you continue to um, stir us with brightness and with awe and occasionally... Um, occasionally, God, we, we believe that with a proper view of you, we end up face down in worship, just absolutely full of awe and adoration. We trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.